Welcome to Season 5 of the Beverage Report Podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Babu Jaina, who is the Professor of Healthcare Policy at Howard Medical School and a physician in the Department of Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. As an economist and physician, Dr. Jenner's research involves several areas of health economics and policy, including the use of natural experiments in healthcare, the economics of physician behavior and physician workforce, medical malpractice, the economics of healthcare productivity, and the economics of medical innovation. Dr. Jenner graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He received his MD and PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and completed his residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is the host of the Freakonomics MD podcast, which explores the hidden side of healthcare. A special thanks for this episode goes to Annie from the podcast team, Alice O'Donker, and the rest of the LSE Economics Department. So to start us off, what motivated you to pursue a PhD in economics and a medical degree? Uh, it was sort of uh, by chance. Uh, I, I always knew I wanted to go to medical school, um, and uh, I knew I wanted to do research, but I wasn't sure what kind of research I wanted to do. And when I was um, an undergraduate, I went to uh, MIT, which is in, is in Boston, and I worked in a lab, a research lab, basic science lab, uh, doing biology research and was planning to do an MD-PhD in the uh, basic sciences. And when I had gone to the University of Chicago to interview, this is uh, around 1999, so it's a while ago, um, the director of the MD-PhD program at that time said to me, he's like, oh, look, I noticed you studied economics in college as well. Uh, would you want to do your PhD in economics instead? And so he just asked me that question um, one afternoon during my interview, and I said, "Sure, you know, I, I'd, I'd consider it." And so he he literally set up meetings that afternoon with people in the economics department at the University of Chicago. I went over there, met with people, and uh, a week later I applied. And uh, a few months later, I was taking anatomy at the University of Chicago in the summer, and then in the fall. Of that year, I started taking the economics coursework, and and the rest is history. So it's it's quite a bit by chance uh, that I ended up here. Interesting. And so your experience, um, having studied PhD alongside medicine, how would you say this differentiates your insights from those of a traditional economist? Uh, I think it just makes me a lot better. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, I no, I no, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's benefits and and cost to this sort of combined background, it, both for medicine and for economics. So, uh, on the economic side, uh, because I spent a lot of my time and and did spend a lot of my time doing medical work, clinical work, um, I wasn't able to sort of specialize in the ways uh, that other economists might specialize in, in particular areas. Uh, though I would consider myself to be a health economist. But I think on net, it's actually been beneficial because uh, a lot of the ideas that I have come from things that I see in the hospital or seeing patients or just being familiar with how healthcare operates. And so um, it's totally possible that I would have had those same ideas had I not been trained as a doctor. But 
my own instinct is that the the medical training has been beneficial um, in that respect. And then there's a reverse question of, well, does being an economist help me whatsoever in my clinical work? Uh, it probably helps in some ways uh, in terms of the way I think about clinical problems, but it probably hurts in some ways because I spent a lot of my life training to be an economist and and still do a lot of research, obviously, in economics. And um, uh, that time is not spent seeing patients. So there's trade-offs and, and all of those things. But I think on net, it's, it's helped me a lot. 100%. And when you think about doing clinical medicine and at the same time doing research and economics, uh, you often re- uh, refer to yourself as a creative investigator. We see this pattern in your questions you explore and your methodology, looking at big data, natural experiments, stuff like that. So how, what is your creative process and why is it important? No, well, first of all, I I, <laughs> I, I don't want to refer to myself as a creative investigator. I think uh, uh, Ted refers to me as a creative investigator, which I, I, I'm not going to disagree with them. I, if they say nice things about me, I don't want to <laughs> disagree with them. But, uh, um, you know, my, my general approach is this. Uh, let me t- take a step back for a second. You know, if you look at people who do work that is really creative, whatever the field is, whether it's in economics or medicine or chemistry or, or literature, whatever it is, um, you know, I think there's a sense that some of the, these people who do this really creative work are just creative people, that there's something innate about them that uh, allows them to do work that is just different. Uh, it's novel in some way. And that could be true. Uh, but there's an alternative view, and that that's the view that I would take, is that, look, that it, it's possible that some of this creativity is innate. There's just some really clever and, and creative people out there. But I also think that this stuff can be taught and can be learned, and I think it's a skill that can be honed. And I say that because we can teach people to do very complicated things. We can teach people to transplant organs from one human being to another human being. So how is it then that I can't train someone or teach someone to to be more creative in the way they think about problems? Um, We spend a lot of time in uh, education at all levels of training people how to solve problems. So you'll learn, you know, you'll learn strategy, you'll learn statistical tools, you'll learn experimental techniques, all sorts of things that that train you how to solve problems. But we don't spend a lot of time teaching students uh, how to conceive, come up with the most interesting of problems in any field. And I think that's an area where we as in you know, academics could do a lot better in is just to help people understand how to come up with ideas. And I'll just tell you the process that that I use, and it's maybe not the only process, I'm sure, but you know, we spend probably a few hours a week solely dedicated to coming up with ideas. You know, we I, I have a group of people that I work with and uh, we meet a few times a week. And at the start of every meeting, every call, I'll, I'll just say, all right, who's got some new ideas to talk about? And you know, most of the ideas we talk about are not good ideas, including my own, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, but that doesn't matter. All that matters is that you once in a while have one good idea and that's sufficient to make a, make a difference. Uh, and so we, we just sort of treat that idea generation process as, um, um, you know, in the same way that I would train myself to learn a new programming language or to, to learn a new spoken language, whatever it may be. 
And if I would like implement it practically, how often do you have these sort of meetings? And in these meetings, do they follow a certain um, agenda or um, are they like more ad hoc? Yeah, uh, they are uh, a little bit of both. So uh, we have these meetings probably about three times per week. And uh, we will talk about ideas. Usually there's about two or three ideas that we talk about. And what often happens is someone will talk about an idea and um, we'll just sort of like riff off that and come up with related ideas. Uh, one thing that I used to do a long time ago, I don't do it anymore as much, is uh, I would read things like Yahoo News, uh, magazines, which, you know, you're in the UK, so there's sort of these like kind of tabloid type magazines. At the store, I'd pick them up and I'd look at them, not because I wanted to, to you know, learn something fundamental about the world, right? But because it's a source of ideas. And one thing that I, um, you know, I, I try to do is is be very, um, um, how would I put it? Um, uh, be very sort of focused on the idea that there's ideas all around me. So like, for example, we're on a Zoom call right now, right? And I'm looking at your background and I see that you're in a room um, that looks like it has a glass wall around it. And if you said to me, Bapu, what's the first idea that comes to your mind seeing you here? I would say, well, I wonder whether or not rooms that have glass, um, you know, glass facades lead to more or lower productivity, right? Because people can walk by you right now and see what you're doing. They see you working hard doing a podcast, right? It's the hardest work one could do. And uh, maybe that makes you more productive. But maybe a little sleep at work would also help your productivity, but you can't do that now because people can see you napping. So I mean, I'm just, this is just sort of spitballing here, but I think there's ideas all over the place. Um, and we just don't spend a lot of ideas, spend a lot of time trying to come up with ideas. Interesting. Now, I just want to pull into one of the ideas you had and a research paper you wrote. So your paper, Lost Tossings, um, on gender discrimination in medicine, revealed a very striking $2 million pay gap between male and female physicians over their career. You find that some of this gap can be explained by differences in how men and women present their research. So can you just elaborate a bit more on how you came up with this idea and what were the consequences of this research? Yeah, so there's actually two two pieces of research that are, that, that are going to be described in your question. So I'll start with the first. The first is some work that I and a lot of other people have done trying to document uh, the the gender wage gap in medicine. Now, this is an issue that a lot of economists have thought uh, quite a bit about, you know, what is it? Like, observably, we know empirically that there are differences in, in earnings between men and women. And there's a, a large question as to why do we observe that? Is this a function of labor market discrimination? Is this a function of intentional differential investment by men and women? Uh, into educational opportunities or specific fields that compensate more versus less. Lots of different things. Um, lots of different things could explain it. One thing that we have appreciated or that I think I've appreciated about medicine is that in medicine, we have access to a type of data that most other people don't have when they look at other occupations. So in medicine, we know the currency of income. It's how many patients you see, what types of procedures you perform, how much clinical revenue you bring in. If you're an academic physician, it's how many papers you write, how many clinical trials you run, how much funding you have uh, from from grants, like from the National Institute of National Institutes of Health, what your specialty is, how many years of experience you have. Because of the data set 
data sets that are available in medicine and that we've had the opportunity to work with, we can actually control for a really rich set of factors that I think is very hard to control for in other industries. So how would you look at uh, gender differences in income between um, in, in, in uh, consulting or in business? How do you account for all the different factors that go into um, compensation? Well, in medicine, we, we actually have a lot of this data that we can put together. And we found that even if you if you do this sort of detailed adjustment, you find about a 15% wage gap between men and women, accounting for all these factors. If you um, accumulate that over the course of uh, the careers of physicians, that that comes to about $2 million. So it's not a small amount uh, of money. So that's the the work that we've done. And the the you you mentioned that the phrase lost housings. That's actually based on a paper, uh, an economics paper by Raj Chetty and and others, where they they termed the phrase lost Einsteins. And they're referring to the idea that uh we may see lost investments by inventors uh because of uh you know differences in socioeconomic status and access to sort of uh, inventive capacity. Well, here what we're talking about is a little bit different. We're referring to uh, um, a woman named Helen Tausig, who was uh, an important scientist uh, that was responsible for important cardiovascular surgical innovations. And um, we termed this paper Lost Tausig's because what we were interested in is, okay, because of the systematic uh, differences in the way that we compensate and reward men and women in medicine, how much, how many fewer Helen Tausig's will we see because of that that sort of policy that we have? Uh, it's an implicit policy, uh, but how much less innovation from female scientists, female clinicians in medicine would we see because there are systematic differences in incentives? Uh, we obviously focus a lot on incentives and uh, how they impact uh, behaviors in one area is innovation and innovative activity. We think about that a lot in economics. So that's what, what the concept of lost housings refers to. So building on this point, I want to dig a bit deeper into the field of medicine. Uh, and the common and unfortunate phenomenon right now is physician burnout. Why do you believe this is on the rise today? Uh, this, so this is an area a lot of people have thought a lot about. Actually, I would, su- I would suspect that this issue of physician burnout is not just specific to the U.S. I think it's probably quite common in most um, most countries. Um, I'd say in, in very recent years, the key drivers are going to be related to the pandemic. There's some other indications that the nature of physicians' work has changed. So there's a lot more time spent... Uh, with clinical documentation in electronic health records, less face-to-face time with patients, things that are required of physicians from insurance companies, uh, like we, we call them prior authorization. So if a patient, if a doctor wants a patient to be on a drug, sometimes they have to uh, do a lot of paperwork to make that happen. And that can be frustrating, I think, to physicians. Um, there's a question about whether or not uh, sort of the increased volume of patients seen by physicians over time could contribute, certainly could, uh, if physicians feel stressed. Um, so I think those are the those are some important reasons for why physicians describe higher levels of burnout now than in, in the past. Um, I'll just say a, a second point, though, which is always sort of puzzled, um, been puzzling to me, is that we talk about burnout in medicine. Um, 
but we don't talk about burnout as much in other occupations, which are arguably um, more or, or certainly as difficult. So for example, a person whose livelihood is comprised by um, you know cleaning, that's what they do. Um, we don't write papers about burnout in that group of people. And clearly the compensation that they would receive compared to physicians is a lot less. The way the society might view their work is different unfortunately. Um, but we don't talk about burnout in those groups. So I've always been interested in what is it specific that the physicians or lawyers or whatever uh, um, more sort of um, specialized work we're talking about, where we talk about issues around burnout. I think it is important to sometimes step back and say, look, uh, burnout is not just a problem among people who have PhDs or MDs or uh, law degrees. Um, a lot of people struggle with these issues of work-life balance and satisfaction at work. And um, we should really be thinking about the whole spectrum of occupations, not just the ones that are quite privileged, like the ones that that uh, I am in or that you might be in the future. Following on this point, there's a logical phenomenon of quite quitting. Do you think that this is a result of the burnout that's happening on a wider scale, as you mentioned, not just within physicians and lawyers per se? Yeah, probably could be. I mean, there's a lot of people who think a lot more about these issues than than I do. I mean, I think it's hard. It's hard to find um, satisfaction at work. It's not easy. And you know, I, I talk to some colleagues who will sometimes complain about work, and you know, you'll hear the phrase, "Well, they call it work for a reason," or they call it a job for a reason. That's one view of it, which is to say that you know you should expect some level of dissatisfaction at work. But there's another view, which is that. You know what? Not not all work has to be like that. You know, I got to tell you, I got I I enjoy my job, and I know a lot of other people that enjoy their jobs. Um, I think an, a really important thing that we need to do a better job at is, uh, no pun intended, is try to figure out what are the the places, the occupations that people would find most fulfilling, um, because we people choose jobs for a lot of different reasons. Um, um, Satisfaction is one of them, but compensation is another. Flexibility is another. And those things don't always line up with uh, job satisfaction. Um, so, you know, I think it's possible to be in, in an occupation where you don't feel as, as burned out, but it would require some trade-offs perhaps. And you've pursued an unconventional career path. So what advice would you give to someone who is a student and trying to carve out a similar career path for themselves? I would say do what you like doing. Um you know, expose yourself to different um, opportunities. Uh, you know, if you're interested in economics, then, you know, talk to a lot of economists, talk to students who are studying economics, familiarize yourself with the types of work that people are doing. And really, maybe, you know, only only get into something if you really enjoy it, if you feel like you're passionate about it. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think about students who are, are kind of contemplating careers in business or law and, and things like that. And those fields um, have a lot of benefits. First of all, depending on your interest, that work can be extraordinarily fulfilling. Um, but what is also true is that work tends to compensate very well. And, and sometimes uh, students are attracted to that those fields because of the compensation that might occur. Or same thing is true in, in medicine, in fact. But there's a lot of other stuff that comes with a job that compensation can't solve uh, problems that you know money won't solve so I think it is is really important to just say all right what is it that I enjoy doing um, 
And how much am I willing to give up to do something I, I enjoy doing? Um, and I think just exposure is, is key to all of that. So, you know, I get emails from high school students who want to chat. So I'll chat with them for like 15 minutes and tell them what my day looks like. Yeah. And I tell them you should talk to somebody else for 10 minutes and ask them what their day looks like. And then use that to sort of figure out what you might want to do. You host a very popular podcast called Freakonomics MD, where you once stated expertise matters when the person receiving the information has no expertise. What do you see as the benefits and risks of media platforms in disseminating academic insights to a wider audience of non-academics? Uh, I think it's useful. Um, you know, certainly as someone who writes papers, I don't want to be in a world where I write a paper and nobody hears about it. It's like, you know, if a, if a tree falls in a forest, but nobody hears it, did the tree fall? It's like the story, that you, the, the joke you'll sometimes hear. So I think there's a, you know, in a, in a, it's very useful for academics to be able to connect with uh, media and other platforms, social media, for example, to disseminate um, work. So I think that that is invaluable. Um, I think we've seen during the pandemic that, there's a lot of appetite, at least for research related to COVID-19, but there's a lot of appetite for scientific information. People who perhaps would not have conventionally thought of themselves as having scientific interests, you see on social media, now having a lot of interest in studies. Sometimes sometimes it's misguided, sometimes it's not. But my general view is that's a good thing for people to be more engaged with what's being studied and what people are working on. Uh, there is a separate issue of how to convey information correctly, how to, um, I think the two big issues are how to make sure that um, what is being conveyed in a causal way is in fact causal. So for example, if there's a, you know, a number of media outlets that report on an association between sunlight and Alzheimer's disease, is that a causal association? Probably not. I would say probably not. Um, so, you know, it might be helpful, for for example, for uh, articles to, to be explicit about that and to explain what the study shows and what it doesn't show. Or I might even argue in some cases it might even be useful if the article doesn't even exist in the first place, uh, both for the researchers who wrote it and for the media who didn't decide to cover it. Um, so one issue is just sort of like talking about what, what a study shows. And then the other thing I think is important in the communication process is to talk about what can you sort of can you generalize from what a study shows? So it's 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 often the case that we'll take a small study, maybe it was well-conducted, and generalize a lot out of it. And sometimes that's not appropriate. Uh, so I think that's another sort of second pillar where I would be thinking about communication, <clears throat> excuse me, communication failures. But in, in general, I'm supportive of the idea that academic work um, should find its way into the mainstream. When you personally think about academic work, do you uh, do you perhaps gravitate towards ideas which have a more mainstream understanding of per se, right? Like that are more applicable to a mainstream audience, or would you perhaps be more open to ideas which are very niche within the topic? I, I would be open to both. Historically, I have focused more on the former, though not exclusively. Some of the stuff that I do is going to be specialized that, uh, uh, general audiences wouldn't be interested in, I would, I would guess. But most of what I do uh, falls into the category where, whereby, you know, if I was walking into a grocery store, I could tell somebody, oh, you know what? Uh, uh, do you know why kids who have August birthdays are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD? 
and um, they probably would be able to figure it out with a little bit of back and forth. They have no background in medicine or economics or even the sciences. So I, I am personally personally attracted to ideas that have general interest mm-hmm. um, and um, that have some kind of degree of cleverness or creativity associated with them. That's just the sort of stuff that I like, but not everybody is like that. In fact, many people are probably not like that. And so I, you know, but it's what I like doing. So this goes back to my earlier comment is, you know, I, this is the kind of work I wanted to do. Um, I wasn't sure whether it would quote unquote pay off or not. It's hard to know that it, it has, and it has worked for me, but it was not obvious that it would have been the right approach to take. Um, but I did it anyway. So in retrospect, uh, what guided the decision to make, make that sort of leap of faith to continue with this path when it was quite uncertain whether it would, it, whether it would pay off or not? Well, I'd say two things. One is um, I had exposure to people who were doing this already successfully. So that's really important because um, I saw that there was a path that others had taken, uh, not in econ- not in medicine, but more in economics. And so that's uh, that was important. The second thing is that I enjoyed it. So, you know, these papers, these studies, they take time to do and the process of getting a, an article published by a, a good medical journal or a good economics journal or health policy journal can be uh, painful for a lot of different reasons. And so you have to enjoy what you're doing uh, to do it. And the third thing is, you know, I'm not a fool. Uh, I got lucky early on. Uh, well, I, lucky maybe is not the right word. I was fortunate early on that these studies attracted attention. They were published in places that I wanted to publish in. And so I saw and I realized early on that this wouldn't be a fool's errand, that I might be able to do more with this. If I had years and years of of um, no success at getting this work published and people hearing about it, then I probably would have done something different. There's a very prominent discussion at the moment with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which has reverberated across the world. How do you think it will impact the efficiency and equity of American healthcare system? And do you uh, do you foresee a rise in defensive medicine? Yeah, I think it's to be decided how it's gonna how it's gonna impact people. It's certainly going to impact people. There's no doubt about it. It's going to impact people who uh, care deeply about um, um, the the right to abortion for sure. It will impact people who care deeply about the opposite. Uh, viewpoint in perhaps a positive way, and that's a very challenging political issue in this um, in this country. Um, I will say, from the very sort of apolitical question of of how will providers be impacted, I think the jury is still out on, on that. We don't really have a lot of good empirical evidence yet, but I think it's a reasonable prediction based on how we know doctors respond to much lower threats of of liability uh, from the medical actions that they take that uh, that the Supreme Court decision could impact doctors um, um, incentives could affect their likelihood to want to uh, perform abortions in in uh, areas that are medically indicated and so I think that it's likely that we will see some impacts there certainly doctors will be thinking about these things and they'll have them in the back of their minds when making those decisions how how impactful it ultimately is is a question that we'll we'll have to see 
Um, the other thing I'll just note as sort of an interesting research question is there's a lot of work by economists and, and others outside of economics that looks at the impact of um, um, Roe v. Wade on maternal outcomes, um, particularly with respect to education, family outcomes, um, sort of economic uh, attainment. There's another issue here that has not really been explored, and it's something that I think people might look at, and it could make for some very interesting and I think impactful research, is to understand the implications of uh, that law for men. So uh, mm. there's two partners here, right? And most of the emphasis has been focused on women, rightly so. Uh, but there could arguably be economic benefits to men who are able to uh, do things in their lives that they otherwise would have done differently if they had a child um, that they weren't ready for. So that's, a, you know, uh, another area of research that I think could be quite interesting to uh, explore. Nice. And um, I guess we're seeing the idea formation phase working in real time right here, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're seeing in real time. <laughs> um, seeing something, yeah. And uh, I want to follow on with another question about the American health system. Uh, the public trust within the American health system fell during the pandemic. Um, why do you think this is and how it can be restored? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so my first question would be is, has public trust fallen? Like, has it really fallen? Uh, you know, there's surveys that talk about these issues. I don't put a lot of trust in surveys. I mean, ultimately what I want to know is, are the medical decisions that people are making now different than they would have made prior to the pandemic? And is it because of a lack of trust in the healthcare system? And how do we show that? It's really difficult to study because so many things changed during the pandemic uh, that affected economic outcomes of people, healthcare outcomes and access of people. So, so much is changing. It's an attractive thing to think that, okay, well, all the political polarization around vaccines, around masking, around lockdowns could change people's trust in the healthcare system. It's certainly possible, um, but I don't think we have shown that um, um, uh, yet. There was a study that just came out recently. Uh, it's not by me, but it's um, by others that looked at um, mortality rates between Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. during the pandemic, and uh, they did uh, they did something interesting. They looked at voter registration or donations, I think, and so they could identify individuals who were either registered as Republican or Democrat in this country, or maybe donated to one of those two parties. I can't re recall how they how they identified party affiliation. But they did it in, in one of these two ways, which I think is credible. And then they linked it to mortality data, and they showed that uh, prior to the availability of vaccines, there was actually no difference in mortality between Republicans and Democrats once you like look at the same county and you look at people of the same age. So you take people of the same age, same gender, who live in the same county. One group is Republican, one group is Democrat, no difference in mortality rates between those two prior to vaccines. Then vaccines come about and you start to see an increase in Republican mortality relative to Democrats. And so, so there's two ways to look at that. One is, oh, okay, look, this is evidence of political polarization with respect to vaccines. Okay, that's fine. Uh, maybe that happened. Um, but the other interesting thing is, well, what was happening before? Because even before vaccines, there was a lot of political polarization about economic shutdowns and masking and social distancing, all that stuff. Um, 
hugely pol- uh, polarized politically. And yet we didn't see any differences in um, outcomes or mortality outcomes between Republicans and Democrats. So to me, that suggests, and in the view of I've had for a while, is that there may be some differences, and there probably are some differences between rep- Republicans and Democrats and how they view these issues related to the pandemic. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there's probably many more similarities between these two groups um, that we we don't focus on. And I think it's important to keep keep sort of like keep that in the back of uh, back of your minds because it's attractive to point out differences in people when in fact uh, the reality might be that the differences are actually small relative to the similarities. Uh, and as a clinical physician, how do you feel about this polarization in medicine? I don't really think too much about it. You know, as a, as a physician, you see someone come into your office or you see someone in the hospital who um, has a medical problem that needs to be treated. And you talk to them about why they do or do not want to get treated. Um, I really don't try to involve politics at all into it. I just try to understand what it is about their situation, uh, their beliefs that have led them to decide one thing versus another. Oftentimes, and this is just purely anecdotal, I, I find that uh, a little bit of time goes a long way. Um, and this is, I think, very underappreciated, right? Uh, you can't expect to change someone's mind about something if you're not willing to you know, sit down and spend a little time to have a discussion. If you can't do that, then don't expect to change someone's mind and don't place blame on them. You, the blame the blame is squarely on you as a as the as a provider so uh again this is all anecdotal but the the limited discussions that i've had with people you know they seem open to these issues interesting uh, again how does this play out on large scale i couldn't tell you going back to more micro uh insight from your career and life while doing academic research on the freakonomics md podcast what sort of different skills do you engage in these two different areas uh, I think the research is, is 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 there are some similarities between doing research and and a podcast uh, in the sense like for a podcast that's targeted towards a general audience of people who are interested in issues around medicine and health and and at the intersection of economics, uh, a framing is very important to figure out what is it about a research question or questions that people are going to think is the most interesting aspect of it. Um, Storytelling is is useful. I'm you know, I'm not a great storyteller, but uh, I'm getting better. I hope. But that's also important. Same thing is true when you're writing a paper. You have to tell a story. Um, you don't just present the findings. You have to have your own interpretation about them. Uh, you have to set out the question. Say, all right, why is this interesting to analyze? And you got to do that in a way that convinces people to want to read further. And then when you're discussing what you're finding, you've got to do so in a way that um, is balanced. Um, but also sort of tells the information in a way that is is digestible by the reader. And the same thing is true for um, for a podcast. So I think that there are similarities and they all come in sort of the communication components of both both lines of work. Finally, something we ask every guest on this podcast, what gives you hope? I thought you were going to ask me for my social security number and credit card information. <laughs> I was like, this, is, this podcast is running by itself. <laughs> What what gives me hope? Um, <laughs> medication. No, I'm just joking. Um, uh, yeah, I, mean, I think you know a lot of things give me hope. The, the world is very different now than it was 30 years ago. I mean, this you know, 
look around, I mean, the, the access to technology that is available is so different. Um, you know, my grandkids can communicate with my parents, their grandparents, they could communicate with family in other parts of the world with a phone that allows them to see each other, right? That wasn't available 30 years ago uh, or much more recently than that, in fact, right? So the way that people are able to interact and communicate with each other is so different. Look at the medications that we have and the medical technologies that we have now compared to 30 years ago. Diseases that were deadly are still deadly, but they're less deadly. Uh, but we have a lot of ways to go in terms of making sure that we have uh, better cures, uh, better treatments rather, and cures for diseases. So that's not to say that there's not a long way to go, but I think the world is changing. Uh, it's. I wish I was part of the world 40, 50 years from now so I could see how it changed further. I might not be. Uh, and then, of course, you know, chatting with people like you who are interested uh, in the world. And, you know, I look back when I was an undergraduate, I had zero interest and anything else besides completing my problem sets and, <laughs> and going to school. Whereas the undergrads that I, I teach now, uh, I teach a, a class at Harvard uh, College, and it's amazing what the undergraduates now, at least the ones I teach, know. Uh, they know about public policy. Um, they know about the Affordable Care Act. I had no idea what Medicare was when I was, uh, or Medicaid. Uh, when I was an undergraduate. And I ended up doing an MD, PhD in economics. So the people I teach, most of them are not gonna do an MD, PhD in economics, and yet they know way more about the world. And I think part of that is because of the connectivity that we have with news and social media and and also just uh, an interest in people. So that provides a lot of hope. Incredible. I really enjoyed the conversation. I really hope that our listeners do as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time and best of luck for your academic research going forward. Perfect. And I will say the following, uh, listen to Freakonomics MD. If you have trouble sleeping at night, it, it'll do the trick. It'll put you right to sleep. <laughs> and be on the lookout for a book by myself and uh, my colleague, Chris Worsham. It's coming out next summer and it's called Accidental Medicine. It's very similar to what you hear about in the show. And I think uh, people enjoy that. When the book comes out, I really prompt you to go out and buy every single coffee you can. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>